This is In Sickness. I'm Angeliki. I'm a doctoral student at the University of Oxford and I study the history of disease. And I'm Maya and I work in public health in developing areas. So today we're going to be talking about ergot poisoning or ergotism. You ready? Oh no. <laughs> What's happened? Okay, your sound cut out for me for a second. <laughs> Uh, ergot or ergotism is what I assume you said. Yeah, that's exactly what I said. The first line of my introduction, by the way, is this is another spooky <laughs> Halloween episode. <laughs> On the 27th of November. I'm so sorry. Listen, life has been complicated. We are both locked down again. <laughs> I did make a note that says we are on the far side of it, but you can never really be too late. So I, mean, I maybe just didn't know how prescient I was. You know what? Forget about Thanksgiving. It's basically Halloween until Christmas. Yeah, that's true. Especially if you're Canadian. Yeah, spooky Black Friday, right? <laughs> Black Friday is very It's very spooky. Spooky, spooky capitalism. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm going to do the thing. Some of you at home sitting by the fire... Christmas tree and rotting pumpkin may be wondering what ergot in fact is. Overall, it's like not really something that people talk about in their day-to-day life. Although most people probably don't talk about like TB and anthrax in their day-to-day lives either. So Okay. Definitely episode one is something that was talked about a lot. COVID-19 and Spanish flu, people true. would not stop. So I feel like at least that's true. Yeah, we're not totally People don't talk about ergot as much as they talk about no, COVID. No, but they should. And here's why. Ergot is a fungus. A fungus among us. Eh? <clears throat> okay. So the ergot fungus is a member of the claviceps genus, which has about 50 members. And these fungus have evolved to grow on different grains around the world, like sorghum or millet and different wheat grasses, that kind of thing. The most common type of this fungus is claviceps purpurea, which typically grows on rye and other semi-related plants like wheat, but those are way less common. It really likes rye. And it's also that like things like wheat and oat and barley are actually a lot more resistant. Within the purpurea family, there are at least three variations, G1, G2, and G3. And they all grow in different environments, namely grassland, forest, and marsh, respectively. So basically whatever, like, wheatgrass or what have you that has evolved to grow in those different environments has a different kind of fungus that will attack it. Fungus uh, fertilizes the rye or any other grain in the same way that a normal spore would. So like, you get these spores, and they float through the air, and they fertilize each other, and that's how you get the fruit of a plant. So that's how rye makes more rye. But instead of getting fertilized by rye spores, it gets fertilized by the ergot fungus spore. And then it grows and hardens into a color and shape that mimics the grain itself, so it's really easy to overlook it. And then it starts to produce this like sweet, honeyish, viscous substance that sort of drips off it and onto the ground. And once it's on the ground, when, you know, rain conditions, weather, whatever are all correct, it forms this sort of mushroom. And then that mushroom releases more spores, which infect more of the surrounding grasses and so on throughout the circle of life. And it's that hard bit that's on the rye mimicking it that makes people 
humans or mammals of any kind, really, sick mm. and produces ergotism. So ergot has a variety of different names. Its most common other name is St. Anthony's Fire, something I feel like you're probably going to talk about. As for the name ergot itself, I found a really funny article that can essentially be summed up as ergot was everywhere, so everyone had a name for it, and it's all really confusing. Except for once. The Greeks did not have a name you for know, it. That's really interesting because I actually read an article that said it's been a, it's been mentioned in Galen. So I really don't know what to believe anymore. However, that being said, the word ergot itself is in fact French. Um, named, they say, by very wise and observant French farmers. Because it stem, stems from the word argot, meaning cock's spur in Old French. Because the fungus makes that sort of spur-like shape as it grows and it would appear that there's a really cool book from the 1970s on this topic called the story of ergot which looks really interesting but i couldn't find it part of the reason the naming convention was so hard and like was everybody seemed to have their own name of it is because it seems to be essentially everywhere in the world there are so many different versions of this fungus that have adapted to whatever grasses and you know foods that are being grown that there are reports of it from north america europe africa asia like everybody's got some version of this unlike many of the other diseases that we've talked about however ergot is not contagious so the fungus grows everywhere it spreads really easily but once you are sick with ergotism you are not contagious to other humans because you get it by ingesting the fungus so if the, your local rye crop is infected and it gets really, you know, it, it's sneaky. So it's like hidden in there and then it gets ground up into the flower because nobody spotted it because it looks just like the rye. And then that flower is made into bread. Then everybody who has a slice of bread from that bat is in big trouble. So if you eat that slice of bread with ergot in it, what happens? Well, ergot produces a lot of this chemical compound called an alkaloid given the right circumstances. So that alkaloid composition of the ergot is most likely what keeps pests away, like it's natural protection. But the amount of it in the fungus depends on what the weather's like, the acidity of the soil, whatever nutrients are there, and all these other factors. And the concentration of that alkaloid in the fungus affects how ill the person eating it will get. And alkaloids are really interesting, and I will talk about it a little bit more later but other things that contain alkaloids include anti-malarials anti-cancer medications analgesic medicines so things that you take to prevent allergy reactions and they also find you can also find alkaloids in stimulants like caffeine or cocaine or psychedelic drugs so they have a really different set of effects on humans some of which are toxic so though they do have different effects on humans Interestingly, all alkaloids have a notoriously bitter taste. Do I understand what alkaloids actually are? Not really, but <laughs> they are a compound. And it's the balance of alkaloids in the ergot that affects the symptoms a person will have. And it's also those alkaloids that make ergot useful in the modern day. Mm -hmm. Ergotism is typically split into two categories, although the symptoms do differ a bit around the world. Again, most likely due to the type of the fungus and the amount of alkaloids in it. And also these categories do cover like a really wide swath of potential symptoms, which is also something we talk about a lot, but these are wild. So category one 
you get muscle spasms, fever, hallucinations, forms of paralysis or tremors, again, with varying degrees of severity. And category two, you get a violent burning sensation in your limbs, shooting pains, and vascular or blood flow issues, which can lead to gangrene and loss of limb. So you can see why our forebearers might have been overwhelmed and confused by these symptoms because what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> like, those are crazy. I mean, that's a wild set of symptoms. Yeah. I mean, I will say that does probably make it one of the easier diseases to distinguish from other things because, again, what? And for this reason, like the really, especially the St. Anthony's fire, so the gangrenous kind uh, category two, that has a very distinctive physical presentation of symptoms. So actually it meant that people identified it as a specific disease with a specific cause. Is there a treatment for ergotism is also a great question. And modern cases are so rare that it's hard to see that we, if we like really made any progress in like trying to treat this um, because everyone was frankly like, why bother? Just don't eat. <laughs> like it's fine so if you catch it before gangrene sets in and you just like remove the infected grains from your diet and you stop eating it that's basically like it will basically just kind of go away if you remove anything that might have any ergot in it or a high amount of alkaloids that could be exacerbating it so any treatments that you're doing that might have ergot, any bread that might have ergot, any of those things, but also taking away things like cigarettes and caffeine, that mm -hmm. is essentially the treatment. Like, just don't eat more of it. Sometimes, because you can get blood clots from ergotism, they'll give you antiplatelet medications, but, like, really it's just, like, stop eating more of it. I was reading that actually vitamin A and like, a dairy-rich diet will give you some level of protection against ergot and help mm -hmm. you to metabolize whatever it is in the ergot that will make you so sick. Anyway, that's all I've got on the background alkaloids. So I'll turn it over to you. Thank you. So remember your category one and your category two, because I'm going to come back to that in a second. I wanted to say the sources are slightly all over the place with ergotism. <laughs> and I can't even really find a scholarly consensus on where and when the disease was first recorded, which is a little bit Ooh. unusual. One article I read like kept contradicting itself. The author couldn't make up their mind about when it had started, who had first recorded it, and it just it mm. was just not great. So while I'm trying like what I'm trying to do today is to give you as coherent a picture as I can of what I'm finding about ergotism. So I'm also just acknowledging right now that um, there's a lot we don't know. That said, with very few exceptions, we can agree that people in the past had identified the cause of the disease called ergotism as rye affected by this fungus. So the disease had been attributed to a saint, and so hospitals run by monks were established specifically for the care of, these, of the afflicted. Ergot poisoning, or ergotism, has been known since at least Galen, but I've also found references to, like, mentions by the Assyrians and like Asian texts, but I just really wasn't sure it was in that super unreliable article. So I've just like left it out. It's pretty common in Europe, well into the Middle Ages with successive famines. And so the consumption of contaminated bread made with spoiled rye. So just to put it into context for you, rye production is huge in Europe. There are like millions of acres of rye that were cultivated 
uh, mostly in the Low Countries, so like Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany, and into Eastern Europe. And then uh, rye production moves into Poland and Russia, going all the way to the Ural Mountains. Ergot is the name for the fungus causing the disease ergotism. It's classified into type 1 that Maya was talking about, which is going to be called convulsive or spasmodic ergotism. Convulsive ergotism affects your central nervous system and parts of your spinal cord. And then type 2 that you mentioned is gangrenous ergotism. So you guessed it, the one with the gangrene. So it causes a lot of issues with your blood supply and eventually your limbs can like harden and fall off. Like whole limbs. Yeah, brutal. Gross. Uh, so specifically the gangrenous ergotism got the name St. Anthony's Fire. It was associated with that saint, uh, who I think he was like 5th or 6th century, and he was martyred after some trip into the desert, so somehow he ended up with that association with the burning. But that refers to like the tingling and the burning uh, in the extremities that are becoming affected by gangrene. That's nerve pain that accompanies the necrosis of the tissues. So that's great. But despite the really like grim sounding symptoms, recovery rates are actually super high, even among the people who lose limbs. So it's like 80 to 90% of people survive. The figures I saw in many articles, which is great to have a consensus on something, it's fatality is between 10 and 20%. So that's really low for like a, a famously medieval disease. Which brings me to uh, the cure. So uh, there's only one cure. <laughs> Guess what it is? <laughs> it's pilgrimage. It's always the cure. It's always the cure. So yeah, pilgrimage or some other kind of devotion to St. Anthony. So the idea during this time is that saints can cause as well as cure diseases. So in 1093, uh, you have the foundation of the Hospital Brothers of St. Anthony. So this is, this is a monastic order, pretty much entirely devoted to the treatment of ergotism patients. So a hospital is built near the Church of St. Anthony, so that's near Vienne uh, in France. And it's, so yeah, it's specifically to accommodate those patients from all over Western Europe. In 1297, the Pope like upgrades it to an abbey. So this is Pope Boniface VIII. And from the 12th to the 14th century, thousands of people who are suffering from ergotism they make this pilgrimage but it was super famous and and it got mixed results <laughs> so as i said survival rates were really high uh and i really wonder how or to what extent that would have cemented their reputation as a place of healing because like obviously they're mm. going to be giving people an improvement in their nutrition and in their medical care and that could definitely have made yeah. Cleanliness. A big difference. I mean, I wouldn't quite stretch to cleanliness, but at least they would be <laughs> they would be providing proper dressings for whatever gangrenous thing is happening and potentially uh potentially improving survival rates just by virtue of the fact that there might not be a secondary infection. That's that's like my wild speculation. I don't know. No, I think that makes I don't know sense. how clean the Abbey hospital was <laughs> in 1297. <laughs> So as we keep going, I'm going to I'm going to deal with the subject matter in two categories. The first, because we love a category, is a contemporary diagnosis. So now we'll be talking about diagnoses of ergotism by people in their own time. So the first references we have to ergotism are from French monastic orders who we just talked about who are caring for the poor. But because of the symptoms, it was sometimes, sometimes conflated with other diseases, such as 
plague because of the black spots and because of the necrosis, uh, with leprosy because of the withering limbs, uh, or even syphilis for all of the above reasons. It's always syphilis. I'm sure there are more, but you kind of get the idea. And it's the same problem as always. Mm So symptom profiles aren't always stable. So you can get multiple diagnoses for the same thing. However, ergot was definitely known and ergotism was definitely known. The like black cone that was the fungus that was growing on on rye was also used in in the work of midwives uh, by medical men and its effects on the human body were definitely acknowledged, uh, if not understood. When there were epidemics of ergotism, they weren't always identified as such. So yeah, they weren't always connecting actual cases of ergotism in communities with ergot. I also real quick wanted to mention uh, Hieronymus Bosch and his Temptation of St. Anthony's triptych. I read a letter by someone who was actually arguing that the fire symbolism and the hallucinatory quality of Bosch's paintings about St. Anthony, that this suggests that the artist lived through at least one epidemic of ergotism, which I'm going to tell you now seems like a stretch to me. It does, but I love this like idea that he was just tripping balls, <laughs> and that's why all his paintings look like that, that. Because they are all extremely trippy. Like, if the listener is not familiar with the works of Hieronymus, Hieronymus Bosch, I would check them out. Like, they're weird. Highly recommend. So you have like, you have Saint Anthony being chased around by like bird women, and then in the background you have this burning city, and apparently the burning city is meant to uh, establish the link with ergotism because of the fire of the. St. Anthony's fire. Again, I say it's a stretch. So the first unambiguous description of ergotism is by Adam Lonitzer in 1582. So I have a quote for you. There are long, black, hard, narrow pegs on the ears of rye, internally white, often protruding like long nails from between the grains in the ear. And he also mentions a foul smell and mentions the use of them, quote, to induce pains in the womb, which kind of sounds like a mm-hmm. euphemism for abortion, but it's kind of debatable whether they would actually openly be writing about this. And as Maya will talk about later, ergot was uh, until recently used to induce childbirth, which potentially increases mortality during childbirth. And it's also been used to control hemorrhage. Uh, the first illustration of ergot is by Gaspard Bouin in his 1658 Theatrum Botanicum. It appears for the first time in the English language in 1677 in a botanical treatise called Catalogus Plantarum Angliae uh, by John Ray. Sounds fake. <laughs> Doesn't it? Someone was like, how do I make catalog of English plants sound fancy? Latin. Uh-huh. Always the Latin. So Erasmus Darwin, who's a physician, natural philosopher, and a poet, he mentions ergot in his 1791 poem, The Botanic Garden. And it's such a fun little excerpt that I thought I would include it. So it begins, Shield the young harvest from devouring blight, the smut's dark poison and the mildew white, deep-rooted mold and ergot's horn uncouth, and break the canker's desolating tooth. That language, right? It's Goodness so gracious. <laughs> very evocative. It's very evocative. And he includes a little footnote for his readers about ergot. Quote, a disease affecting the rye in France commonly and in England occasionally. So my 
last kind of section is about retrospective diagnosis because like I can't get through an episode of in sickness without mentioning retrospective diagnosis <laughs> of course not and no one would ask you to <laughs> thank you your indulgence is much appreciated and like part of the reason that we keep talking about it is because of that trend of like trying to explain things we don't understand in history with reference to the biological or or some sort of like chemical explanation so looking at sources that uh, describe events that we can't make heads or tails of and going back and thinking well is there a disease that could explain this is there a drug that could explain this or some other external kind of factor that could have altered people's behavior uh, with some compelling results but just not in this case. Um, and the two examples that I have of uh, retrospective diagnosis here are actually taken from this podcast will kill you because I love them. And uh, they did an episode on the dancing plague, otherwise known as Tarantism. The whole point of the episode is it's this mysterious thing that happens in Strasbourg in 1518. And it's written down a few years later by Paracelsus, I think in the 1530s. So I'll give you like a brief overview because it's wild. Hundreds of people in this town in like northern France in 1518 started dancing nonstop until they dropped. Like literally until they either passed out or died from dancing. So at first, authorities in Strasbourg intervened by actually doubling down and setting up a stage and encouraging more dancing to like get it out of their systems. And then things got worse, obviously, and they eventually went full on footloose and banned dancing and music altogether. Oh my they god. Eventually <laughs> opted for an enforced period of penance since this was viewed as a visitation from God. Remember what I talked about? So they work their way through the various hypotheses on this podcast will kill you, and they actually managed to loop ergotism, hysteria, and all sorts of other fun stuff into their discussion of what could have caused the dancing plague. And they also bring us nicely onto the topic of the Salem witch trials. Mm. In the 1970s, one of the explanations that comes out is that potentially it's ergotism because LSD is also a big thing in the 70s. So they're thinking to themselves like, ooh, hallucinations, shooting pains, suffering of the kind that could mm -hmm, be convulsive mm -hmm. ergotism. And they're trying to find a logical explanation why uh, the accusers might not have been in their right minds either. Well, yeah, I mean, like, like in the one hand, you can see why, like, these, you know, the, you know, being consumed by invisible fires and hallucinating seeing things. Like, yeah, you could totally attribute that to ergotism. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, and maybe, you know, they thought it wasn't a thing in this brave new mm -hmm. world or whatever. So they, they wouldn't have considered it as an option, blah, blah, blah. I see that. I understand that. I also think it's kind of a way of excusing this like really horrible trait of human behavior that we have. That's happened in many, mm -hmm. many other places without even a question of if yeah. it was ergotism or not. Yeah. They kind of point out in this podcast will kill you that actually if it was ergotism, it would have been affecting many more people and not just young women. So they had a, they kind of like broke it down and were like, here is X, Y, Z reason why we think it's super unlikely. And they made a really compelling case for why it's actually not ergotism. Mm -hmm. um, and I totally, yeah, I agree with them that neither of these examples make a compelling case for convulsive ergotism. But still, 
There's quite a bit of attention in pop culture lately for the Salem witch trials um, and ergotism. And I, I wanted to mention also that like apart from these academic papers from the 70s and onwards, there's a special on this PBS show called Secrets of the Dead. And the episode is called The Witch's Curse. Oh, I would totally watch that. Yeah. I love a good PBS special. One big argument against the ergotism and Salem witch trials uh, slash dancing plague for me is that like if people knew about ergotism like if that link was so well established between contaminated rye and this particular array of symptoms then why wasn't that link made at the time because it could have been it would have been and i'd be curious about the links between ergotism and witchcraft accusations which i didn't actually look into It, it goes back to the the little rant i had earlier about (laughs) about like the causes of disease and whether it's supernatural whether like within that category it's god or the devil or the saint like whether it's Mm -hmm. the rye like anyway yeah so yeah i'm also super interested in the treatment of ergotism and leprosy or rather like the comparison between ergotism and leprosy because like there doesn't seem to be that much stigma attached to ergotism yeah like maybe just because of the lack of contagion possibly but i guess how'd they how'd they get well there clearly it was well known enough that they they knew that with this particular set of symptoms like it just wouldn't pass from one person to another like it was well known enough and (laughs) the one case where persecution might be involved that we've talked about is in the retrospective look at the salem trials from our modern perspective and i think it's partly because we have a problem dealing with historical beliefs of these kind uh of these kinds in the supernatural so obviously it must be lsd like they must have been out of their minds and i think i think it's kind of an out so like when you're for example taking the salem witch trials and saying oh it could have been ergot poisoning what you're actually saying is that you don't want to engage with the beliefs that they may or may not have had yeah it's like trying to excuse behavior i think I was listening, okay, so I was listening to a really, I think it was a Noble Blood episode that was talking about George Washington. Oh, yeah, I just listened to it. Basically, in it, she talks about how there were essentially these, like, stories that are made up about figures that are real historical figures, but they become somewhat mythical. And I think it's true everywhere that you are taught the sort of mythical history mm-hmm. of people who become Look, heroes. the the smallpox blankets too. It's just like stuff that is stories that are told so many times that they become rote exactly. and you don't even have to examine where the story comes from anymore. Yeah. And, um, but I think, I think it's important that like how many of the examples that you have of that are American. Like, I think we as a nation are especially guilty of that. Like we take a person and we teach these, legends right like even during the election cycle this year how many times was like honest abe abraham lincoln brought up as this like icon of honesty and freedom and equality and like the real history which most of us know by now doesn't actually reflect that Mm -hmm. and i think the same thing is true of these like salem witch trials like we want it to become this stuff of myth and like explain it away so we can tell it as a Mm -hmm. story Rather than acknowledging that, like, as a nation, we have all of the... It's, Thanksgiving is the same way, to bring it back to the beginning. Like, yeah. we have this story. And, you know, we're taught in, like, elementary school, we get these pictures of, like, pilgrims with their shiny buckle shoes and their little hats. And then, like, Native Americans sharing the table and everyone's sharing their food. Like, what kind of bullshit, bizarre mm-hmm. story is that to feed people? Whenever we have 
uh, a situation, whether past or present, that seems really complicated and really fraught and that has many interpretations, it's really tempting to try and explain it. And by explain it, that actually means come up with a super simple linear narrative kind of soundbite because that is more easily digestible and that is how we convey information. Like we tell stories and stories have interpretations and it's never quite good enough. I agree. And I think we're like, I think this ergot idea with the Salem witch trials could be like a modern example of that. But like, I mean, there's a modern example of that happening with like, the covid outbreak like this you know we make stories we make a narrative mm-hmm. that makes it more digestible because it's in essence very traumatic and we need to explain it yeah and i th- i feel like you know people don't necessarily do it intentionally all the time no but let's take it into the present day okay the present day hello welcome thank you for joining me here in 2020 i just want to come back to that idea of like the epidemic context or like outbreak context because uh, and, you know, the research doesn't really talk about this a lot because ergot can grow wherever. But, of course, for humans, there's more of a risk of ergotism if you're living in an agricultural society where there are, you know, great big fields of wheat and rye and whatever growing around. And, you you know, you get one spore in there and it's essentially impossible to guarantee that it's not going to affect everything. So even though we know a lot more about ergot than we used to, there still is a danger of ergotism occurring in highly agricultural areas. And so I just wanted to give you a couple of kind of wild examples in the last century. So like medium modern. So this one was my favorite. It's actually quite sad as they usually end. I'm like, oh, what a fun story. And at the end, I'm like, anyway, people died. (laughs) (laughs) Maya, you're going to have to get over it. Like our entire podcast is about epidemic disease. Okay. So in 1951... There was a pretty major outbreak of ergotism in France that ended up affecting more than 250 people. Um, and it's called the case of the cursed bread <laughs> <laughs> or pain maudit. Ooh, I like so, that. <laughs> spooky Halloween spooky. Christmas. <laughs> this is like a little bit of, you know, let's set the scene. This is 1951. World War II is just finishing, and in places like France, it obviously had a really big impact on grain production and the spread of disease, right? There was, you know, a lot of young men had died in the war. There hadn't been people to maintain the fields. People were hungry. The area in question where this outbreak occurred was a part of Vichy France, or the section of France that was run by a government that supported the Nazis in World War II. And what the Vichy government had done is they'd put together a monopoly on flour. All of the flour for bakers had to be purchased from a central supplier, in essence, so that central supplier could control the cost of the flour. But what that actually meant was that bakers had no control over the quality of the flour that they were getting. So what ended up happening is that in this more central Vichy provinces where the government was like centered back in the day, those towns closest to the central government would get highest quality flour. And then the further away you got from the center, basically they would get the leftovers in those departements. So the quality of their flour would just sort of go down. And often the lower quality of the flour meant that it was being mixed with rye flour to supplement it. In 1951, one miller sends out these batches of low-quality flour, which are reported to make a sort of a sticky gray bread. Yum. 
<laughs> delicious. Over 42 bakers complained to the central government of the quality of the flour, but they are in this position where they still need to bake the bread to sell the bread to survive, right? Like if they just throw it away, then they won't make enough money to buy flour for the next time. And of course, people need the bread to eat. So one town especially called Pont Saint-Esprit gets hit very hard. And so it's just this, like, even still, it's a tiny town. It only has 10,000 people in it. And back then it was the same. It was really small. It had this one baker. Everybody bought their bread there. Basically, he bakes his bread overnight. Everybody comes in in the morning, gets their fresh baguette. Everybody goes home happy. And almost immediately, there are just tons of people in this tiny town, like, vomiting and diarrheaing, And they don't know what it's from, so they just keep eating their bread, right? Like, you've got an upset stomach. What do you want to have? A slice of toast. Like, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And it takes them three days to figure out what's causing it. So people are still eating this spoiled bread. And on like around the second or third night, something happens, which the local doctors call apocalypse night. And all the symptoms get so severe that people are starting to hallucinate and have, you know, these flaming limb symptoms, like all these horrible symptoms because they're eating more and more ergot. People are jumping out of windows because they think they are airplanes. One kid strangles his mother one child thinks he has eaten a giant basket of snakes and like is running through the streets screaming like people are just having really bad trips basically and it's just like a horror show it's awful the worst part is these hallucinogenic effects actually continue to go on for months following those three days until they'd identified the cause oh my god how much were they ingesting well, they just, like, didn't stop eating the bread. They didn't stop eating it, yeah. And so eventually 60 or so people ended up in a mental hospital because it just, like, destroyed them. Uh, Ten people died, and several hundred were, like, severely ill, which also you feel so bad for them because they literally just made it out of World War II and were like, phew, home, safe again, just such a disaster. I mean, after World War One, there's Spanish flu, hugging and kissing. After World War Two, you've got the worst acid trip of your life. Yeah. So eventually they figured out. They're like, okay, the the bread is bad. That's what made us all sick. And then this poor baker becomes this like big main suspect. And they start doing essentially an examination. Like a, they go and try and figure out who got what from whom. So they determine, okay... The baker got the flour. They run around the town. They ask everyone about the quality and the taste of the batch of bread that was made. And the baker is like, I legit just made my bread. Like, I didn't know anything. And so they're like, okay, well, where did you get the flour? You know, they do a pretty good job. The baker identifies the miller who he got it from. And then the police and the doctors go to the miller. And then the miller is questioned. And over the course of this questioning, all this other stuff comes to light. Like there's these corrupt agreements between the farmers and the millers and the bakers. And people are taking profit cuts. And it's just this like giant breadgate conspiracy. <laughs> breadgate. It's like very confusing. But as a part of that, and that's part of the reason why these people in these outer smaller towns are getting this really poor quality bread is because they're not part of this whole, you know, flour conspiracy that has emerged at the far end of World War II. So part of the issue is that ergot grows best on rye, which is mixed with flour if there are shortages. But high quality rye 
is actually more expensive than regular flour. So the miller accepted low-quality rye that was grown because that was cheaper. And then he mixed it up with the good stuff, hoping that no one would notice. And so then this poor baker got this bag of poisoned flour just because he wasn't in on the take. Like, he wasn't a part of the conspiracy, and he lived out in a remote village. This poor guy. So... And there's all these other alternative conspiracy theories about what actually happened in the cursed bread. Some people accuse the government of testing LSD on this village as like a post-World War II defense mechanism thing, which I kind of get, right? Like that was a thing in the U.S. They were doing LSD testing, Mm -hmm. but there's not like some guy wrote a whole book about how this like apocalypse night was actually just the government dropping okay. lsd from try to find the title of it and we'll include it in the notes because like that's great yeah, and i want to read it wild <laughs> but most like actual academic sources agree on ergotism as the cause of this basically village-wide food poisoning with a nice side dose of <laughs> just a basket <laughs> of snakes just a wild story but like you can i think within that you can kind of see how you get the salem witch trials like that actually was just like a village losing their collective Mm -hmm. minds um but of course they all had a different reaction which makes a little bit more sense there have also been other outbreaks of ergotism even more recently than that one so there was one in the early 2000s in ethiopia and they had the gangrenous form of ergotism so people were just kind of losing limbs and nobody really knew why And then the WHO came and did a study of what was happening there because they were like, why is suddenly everyone getting gangrene? And then they identified ergot in various concentrations growing in the local wild oats, the local barley, and the local wheat. Oh, and oats and wheat normally do so much better. It was just on everything. It had evolved for everything, on like the wild forms of it too. So it was just everywhere. And one thing that stood out in both of those examples is that cooking does not kill it. Like... It got ground up into a powder and mixed up with all this other stuff and baked at a high temperature and it just doesn't matter. It still makes you sick, which I find extremely Mm. discouraging. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to bring it back to a more positive note. So we do actually still use ergot today, as you mentioned. Some of those uses are like positive, like it it has medical use. Like you said, in history, there were a lot of unconfirmed uses around abortion and preventing postpartum bleeding, and they were very volatile. And part of the reason is because you couldn't control control the alkaloid concentration or those pesky alkaloids that I was talking about at the top. So, like, if you just picked some ergot, you really didn't have any idea. Like, it could be really, really strong, and then maybe you would accidentally miscarry instead of starting contractions. Like, there was a real... Um, imbalance there. There is still some medicine that uses an ergot base for postpartum bleeding, but for the most part, there are other chemicals that are much more easily controlled that you can use for things like abortion or miscarriages, things like that, um, or starting contractions that just are like, you don't have to worry that something is going to go wrong or not as much. So, of course, worth mentioning here, the most common and well-known derivative of ergot that we keep joking about is actually LSD. LSD itself is pretty much synthetic, like actual acid that they make in a lab. But the roots of the structure for LSD come from ergot. So 
In the 1930s, scientists isolated the central alkaloid from ergot and called it lysergic acid. And then a scientist in Switzerland, whose name was Hoffman, was experimenting with lysergic acid, <laughs> seeing how it reacted to different like, reagents. What was the story? Is it just that like he picked it up and he didn't realize it was absorbed through the skin and then he just like had this <laughs> trip? No, no. Oh, he no, he did it on purpose. So he basically, people were like, we found this lysergic acid and everyone was like, great, doesn't look very special. It doesn't look like it would do anything particularly interesting and essentially put it aside. And he was like, I don't know. Let's see how it reacts to various things. And he made it and he tested it on some animals. And then he was like, let's test it out. And then took some LSD and went for a bike ride. So <laughs> had a great time one assumes. You do the darndest things for science, don't you? So he tested it with all these different reagents and one of the reactions produced a derivative called diethylamide, which is what creates lysergic acid diethylamide, LSD. For short, nailed it. <laughs> okay, so this original natural derivative of LSD was used for a while to treat mental illness like schizophrenia but it for real just made people way worse like it hurt them like they were going bananas and doctors were like it's working like just terrible it's fully banned it's and illegal funny. like it's just so bad okay for what it's worth though this is an important disclaimer for the more diligent <laughs> trippers amongst us there are people that still do go out into the wild and find wild ergot to wow. base their LSD on. And if you go on sites like Reddit or other like very sort of drug oriented sites, you can find plenty of chemists out there who like find ergot and use it or like sharing recipes and making recommendations and doing all these things. Oh, I should have read my notes. This is funny. Who find ergot and use it as a base hey. for their acid. <laughs> eh? I like it. Okay. Thank you. Anyway, all this to say, don't do that because <laughs> you don't know what the content is. It is the same. Yeah. Like, first of all, it's a really complex scientific process with reagents and all kinds of things to get from point A to point B. And you probably shouldn't do it unless it's like a breaking bad type situation and you truly know what you are doing. Definitely but still don't. probably don't. And like LSD is largely synthetic now so that you can control it so you don't end up like those poor schizophrenic patients who lost their minds because people treated them with this weird uncontrollable alkaloid. So can't say I would recommend it, but it is a thing. I mean, do you really want to risk the gangrene is the question. I personally I would not. Current uses besides LSD purified ergot these days is still a super common treatment for migraines and it's also being explored as a treatment for parkinson's dementia and other neurodegenerative diseases and that is largely because of the neural impact that it can have and its influence on dopamine and serotonin receptors but listen even these purified alkaloids from ergot are still a wild card they have something that's called a broad activity spectrum which is exactly what it sounds like they are just really hard to regulate and so they're mostly being replaced by a synthetic version of them which replicates the intended structure in a way that's more easy to regulate another common risk though like one of the most common sources of ergotism today is that if you take too much of an ergot-based medication even in its purest form you just get ergotism 
So it's like kind of a curse and a blessing, right? So people, it's most commonly used as a migraine medication. And there are some people who take that migraine medication who will get ergotism. And then they'll just have to stop taking their migraine medication for a while until it goes away. That's really scary. Yeah. Not something I would love to have happened to me. Well, like clearly, clearly we don't have better options because if we had better options, we wouldn't still be prescribing these ergot based drugs that you can't fully control. Yeah. Control. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think migraines also are notoriously hard to treat. I do mm-hmm. think it's interesting that we're moving towards a synthetic version. Like I, I, I like when we recognize something that nature makes that helps us like how aspirin's based on willow bark and whatever, like recognize those natural properties. And now we're in a place where we can replicate it to be more useful to us as people. I think that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. We talked about that in our traditional medicine section in lead. Yep. One fun key ending point for you. So researching all this stuff about ergot brought me to this phrase, sola dosis facet venenum, which is often used to talk about ergot, belladonna, and other naturally occurring poisons that also have medicinal uses. So that Latin translates to the dose makes the poison, which is often attributed to the father of modern toxicology, Paracelsus. The idea is, you know, everything in moderation. Like it's good for you up until it's not. It's only a poison depending on the dose. And that's really true of ergot. And Paracelsus famously worked with mercury, so he definitely knew what he was talking about. He knew what it was about. (laughs) Yeah. So, and that's, that's it. So my hooray, my actual hooray for today is that Angel sent me a, (laughs) an early Christmas present of a, um, what are they called? It's an an advent calendar of tea so we can drink the same tea every day from afar yeah so we have matching ones i've never done an advent calendar before and like according to me when you number something it goes from left to right and up to down but all of these Mm -hmm. numbered uh all of these numbered tea bags are completely out of order so i'm gonna have to like hunt for one every day starting from the first of december apparently that's the thing is that the thing i think it's just supposed to be fun to look for it honestly I mean, it is fun to look for it. Big hooray. We've completely stepped up our game because I got funding for new podcasting equipment, which is why you can't hear my stupid Beats headphones crackling. The setup is slightly more involved now. However, I think it's worth it. And I hope that the uh, listening experience has been much improved so thank you lincoln college oxford for the funds to do this and i'm super psyched uh all right well bye friends stay enraged and stay engaged we'll see you next time bye thank you for listening to in sickness researched and hosted by angeliki and maya intro track and logo by adrian morningstar sound editing by maya